Hi and welcome. My name is Josh Stone and welcome to another episode of the Ignite podcast. The Ignite podcast is dedicated purely to the engineering and construction industry. Join me as I interview serious change makers, leaders and business owners who are creating significant shifts in the industry, leading inspired teams, running successful businesses and in general making big things happen. As the old saying goes, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. This podcast is all about bringing like-minded change makers, leaders, and business owners in the engineering and construction industry together to share their stories, their strategies, their ideas, and their mindset on what's working for them right now in order to help you learn from the best, to implement, and to grow as well. Now, if you'd like some help growing yourself, your team, or your business even faster, head over to my website, www.coachignite.com for more resources or book in a call and we'll map out a plan together for you to move forward with confidence. In the meantime, hit the subscribe button so you get notified about future episodes. Sit back, relax and enjoy the episode. Well, hello everyone. Welcome to today's episode of the Ignite podcast. Uh, Today I've been joined by Nick Shuring. Mate, welcome to the podcast. Woohoo! It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Easy. So, mate, um, you and I have sort of caught up a couple of times. Um, you're on doing some fairly interesting things at the moment, which, which I'm keen to dive into. But maybe for everyone listening and watching, give us a bit of a, yeah elevator pitch on what you've been up to over the course of your career. Yeah, gosh. Um, how, do you, how do you sum up 20 years of uh, chaos and noise all in uh, 30 seconds? Um, uh, I guess I, I've been working for myself basically for the last 15-odd years, um, I've kind of found myself always at the start of like an emerging industry, an emerging trend, you know, whether it was um, mobile consulting or um, uh, online dry cleaning or uh, co-working. I always have found myself kind of at the kind of start of what might be a trend and uh, and now is no different with Carbon Planet. It's definitely at the front of a, of a new emerging kind of industry and trend as well. Um, over the last... I suppose the last 10 years, um, I co-founded uh, BizDojo in New Zealand, which was the largest startup hub and co-working network. Um, we had uh, many thousands of people working out of the spaces across New Zealand and I think well over 100,000 people through events over the nine years that we were operating. And we went from a uh, you know space with about six people in it back in 2009 you know, scaling sort of three to four hundred percent year-on-year growth up to you know thousands of people across um, nine locations, fourteen thousand square meters. So it, it wow. just grew, grew like a, grew like a virus really, um, and, and went um, after exiting that. Um, uh, and the sales process of exiting the business was pretty transformational and brutal. Uh, it was a hostile buyout of the company. Um, I ended up relocating over here to Australia and I've been in Brisbane uh, for the last three years and I did a huge career shift. So I um, wanted to kind of spend the next 10 years of my life uh, making a difference um, on some of the big SDG goals and one that I was really passionate about is water. And uh, and so I joined a big engineering firm after a stint with a not-for-profit helping them and, um, and now I find myself working on... Uh, addressing a massive issue around uh, climate change with carbon. So, you know, trying to make uh, traceable, trackable carbon offset um, a, a reality uh, and more defensible. So elevator pitch-ish. 
No, mate, that's awesome. So I guess um, we kind of met when you were in your uh, or, or finishing up your your journey with GHD. So I'm kind of mm. curious to to kind of unpack that in terms of what you did there because I feel like um, mm. particularly for my uh, listeners and viewers, hugely curious about what you were pursuing um, there in, in the water space and yeah. then super interested to dive into what you're doing now because I know you and I have been having some messages over LinkedIn, um, the yeah. words N- NFTs and carbon offsetting <laughs> and all sorts of stuff are in there. So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, mate. So I guess, yeah, to your your journey with with GHD, maybe give us a bit of a summary on that um, and, and where you got to and, and, and the work you were doing. Yeah, well, I think it's a really interesting one when you, you think about how do I how do I scale my impact? How do I move faster? And and when I think back to um, my my kind of first major startup, it took nine years to build a business that was worth you know sort of tens of millions. And and I kind of went you know I don't want to I don't want to take that long to kind of create that impact. I want to try and do it faster. Um, and actually, I ended up with GHD through um, uh, when I was at Waterstart, uh, which was a, a really amazing not-for-profit that was about funding technology adoption for large water utilities across Queensland. Um, I kept meeting all these great startups with all these great ideas and I wasn't quite sure, you know, how good was the idea? Is it something that's already established? And this person kept getting mentioned to me all the time and her name was Saskia Hunter. And Saskia was a a, um, principal um, uh, wastewater engineer from GHD. And the first time we met, I was like, okay, I need your help. Can you please unpack some of these ideas and let me know if you think they're legitimate or not? And she was brilliant. And we got along like a house on fire from there. And when I finished up with Waterstart, um, I actually ended up with an interesting opportunity with a major um, uh, water utility here in Aussie to actually help them with some of their startup, um, startup planning. And they were looking at actually doing an accelerator. And so I... I thought, well, I think there's a better way to help them and perhaps that's in collaboration with GHD. And so actually um, through a uh, conversation with Saskia and then Jason Shaw, who you had on the show uh, the other day, yep. um, we, we kind of came up with a way to give this water utility uh, a better outcome by actually me joining the GHD family um, and helping bring that all together. And, uh, and in the end, we delivered that work and it was really exciting. But what actually came out of my time with GHD was understanding that a lot of the challenges facing the water industry are pretty consistent globally. Um, and, uh, and the role that Saskia and I, well, I guess the mission that Saskia and I developed under JSOL and, and uh, Kumar's lead inside GHD was around going, well, how could we change the dialogue with water clients around the world? How could we move GHD from... Uh, a traditional service provider um, to actually a trusted ally and, and partner to help them sort of understand where are the, some of the future trends. And so we launched a platform called Aqualab um, right in the mix of um, COVID. So, you know, all of our planning around travel and a national yeah. rollout program out the window. Yeah. Best laid plans. Yeah, yeah. And we kind of had to do it all remote from uh, from Brisbane. And uh, and obviously, like many organizations, GHD was, you know, being, you know, trying to be as sensible as it could be with its um, with its cash flow. So, you know, we had to adapt and, and try and um, do things as a startup on a shoestring budget. Um, and, and through that, you know, we ended up 
um, with about 58 odd uh, major water utility clients from across the globe uh, who joined the community. And it was the first time GHD had uh, launched a podcast. So we launched the first podcast that they've ever done, which was, um, which was really exciting. Um, Future Water, Future Water podcast. Uh, and that was again, industry interviews, much like what you're doing. Um, but it was, it was really about less about how do, how do we as GHD sell, but more about how do we listen and how do we get involved um, with the ecosystem, um, both uh, other engineering firms, water clients, uh, technology providers, and actually try to bring everyone together in a bit of a neutral space. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a shitload of learning. <laughs> yeah, it was and exciting. That, and yeah, like I'm curious to dial into that because I think everyone's, like, I've, you know, you and I have caught up a few times and I love listening to your talk because it's very, like, you've done heaps of stuff and, you you know, you move at a fast pace and a fast speed. There's always probably about a bazillion thoughts going through your head at any one time. ADHD at its finest. Oh, right. Okay. Good to know. Um, <laughs> what were your key learnings? Like, I guess when you're looking at trying mm. to bring those stakeholders together, you're trying to bring people together, you're doing something that's innovative and hasn't necessarily been done before. So you're kind of in that future planning space. How do you... Or how did you go about trying to bring people along for the journey, turning that into something that's tangible? People actually go, hey, this is an awesome idea. We should get on yeah. board here. Because I think um, a lot of what I do with my clients is uh, from a coaching point of view is trying to get them think to think strategically. Let's get out of the weeds. Um, let's get out of the day-to-day. Let's think more strategically. Where's your market sector going? What are opportunities in your market sector? How can you position your team or your business to be at the forefront of that, and not many people um, get the opportunity to do that. So I'm curious about your learnings and how you approached mm-hmm. all that. Yeah, yeah, look, great question. And I, and I think this is part of the interesting um, kind of foundational stuff of having run and, and developed my own services business with, with BizDojo and, and some of the other consultancy stuff. So uh, at the end of the day, BizDojo's um, customer base, um, they could pick up their business and change. You know, there was only a one-month commitment and they could, if they didn't like what they were getting, they'd go somewhere else. And so 10 years of developing, trying to kind of interpret what you weren't saying you know, trying to work out what 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 is actually what's Josh really saying when he's do- doing this. You know, how do I how do I provide you the products and services that will actually you go? I didn't even realize that was a problem I was trying to solve. Thank you so much. You know, we spent a long time doing that, and so trying to bring that across to um, GHD was actually really interesting because um, you know, very um, you know, legacy organization, been around for over ninety years. Um, you know, uh, average, I think, average tenure in, in the business somewhere around 11 years. Um, and so you've got an incredible wealth of experience, but you've also got this challenge of like, oh, well, this is what I've always done. I've kind of come up in the organization. I may not have actually experienced other industries or other organizations. I may have actually stayed on, um, I've maybe never been on client side. I've only ever been a service provider. And so what I probably underestimated was how important it would be to bring the internal stakeholders on the same journey as the external ones. Um, and, uh, and subsequently, I think I probably was, you know, probably a little bit frustrating for some of the internal folks, um, as well as um, naive as to just uh, the speed in which change can happen inside a company of 11,000 staff. Now, it's not to say that they're not motivated to change. Um, but you know, it's 
when you're when you're dealing with projects of that scale, you're dealing with um, you know uh, people who have been doing a very similar thing for a long time. It's going to take some time to actually shift those that way of engaging with a customer. Yeah. Um, especially if you've been really reliant on on getting a tender, right? You know, I, hey, we've there's a submission go up. We go on the website, um, we download it, and let's you know jump into it. And that model has worked really well. And I think what's actually caught a lot of engineering firms and a lot of organizations off hand is that um, the whole process around um, tendering and panels has changed dramatically in the last couple of years. And, you know, GHD, like others, have had some, you know, some real upsets with, um, you know, traditional clients that have been with them for a really long time, making the decision to actually step back and, and completely shift how they might operate their procurement panel um, which, you know, often completely caught people by surprise. And I, and I think that's, if there was one thing that we were trying to um, address, I suppose, with Aqualab, it was about how do we better understand what could potentially happen when that panel would be going? What, what are the real things that this organisation is worried about? What's keeping them up at night? Because it may not be what's in the tender documents that they're releasing. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think I think that's that's the the nuances of the political undertones inside those organisations and, and those kind of things. I think it, a project isn't just a project anymore. You actually have to be able to have a, a holistic view of the entire ecosystem that's influencing that decision. And and I think for GHD, like many others, those are a whole set of new muscles um, that are going to take time to develop. And how do you, like, I'm, I'm super keen to dial in on that. Like, it's mm. how do you, well, how did you and how, how, how would you moving forward? Um, because, again, it's the client relationship piece and it's understanding your client's world on a level that we've not ever experienced before. So clients want so much more now. They don't, they, they kind of just assume that you can do the technical piece. They, they go, yeah, I get it. Like, you can, you, I assume that you can just, do that technical element. I assume you've got a whole bunch of engineers that can that, that can punch that out. I'm finding yep. that with my clients and the people who are winning at the moment, it's those it's those individuals that can really get inside their clients' mind. And, and I love what you talked about before with your um, previous business about kind of almost handing a client something. And they're like, I don't even know I needed that, but thank mm-hmm. you. Um, how would you recommend people go about that process? Look, it's there's some uh, there's some hard there's some actual hard truths that have to be asked um, inside the organisation itself, you know, and I think that um, it's very easy to come at a client's problem from a point of technical superiority and go, hey, this is just a technical problem when in fact it's actually an incredibly social issue um, and a political issue that that client's trying to navigate. And, and that requires a deeper dialogue than, I suppose, um, some pre-scoping uh, and a bit of time um, as part of a tender process. And, and I think this is an interesting one for me is around um, why do they outsource that work? You know, and you've, I mean, obviously, a lot of clients are building capability in-house um, and they're looking at the types of stuff they'll outsource to a service provider. And that, that's changed a lot, I think, over the last few years as people, as organisations have realised that, you know, they, they can't be at the mercy of um, the conditions that might be happening. And, you know, one of these might be 
a tremendous amount of um, transport work going on in, in um, Victoria or New South Wales. So that all of that work happening simultaneously means that you only have so many engineers and people are stretched to breaking point. So from a from a service provider perspective, really high utilization numbers, um, you know, good backlog. From a client perspective, huge frustration, real, real fear around, okay, so are we getting the first run people, the second, the third? Um, and then there's this other kind of elephant in the room, which is the clients are going, okay, we need you to collaborate in a truly transparent, open book way with who are your competitors. And th- I mean, that's, you know, that's hard enough getting to know, you know, a business partner, let alone a competitor who you are going toe-to-toe with on many projects. And now you've got to sit on the shared panel and actually work out how you two compete and work together simultaneously. And, you know, and there's, I, I think that's really difficult. So, yeah, definitely I think there's some internal hard truths that have to be asked. I think that um, one of the things that's important, I guess, is where um, CX becomes a reality, not just rhetoric that customers, you know, that people inside a business throw around and go, hey, we want to be customer centric. Well, what is customer centric? You know, like, is that like dialing it in and sending a survey to your client at the end of a project and saying, hey, was that great? And they go, yeah. Um, and I, and I've, I found it really interesting analyzing some of those types of um, reports and actually going, we might have had a really positive output from a project, but yet we lost that client. And so you're going, so if we had a really positive outcome, but we still lost the client, why did we lose the client? What was the underlying driver to that? And those are those awkward conversations that I think, you know, if you're a traditional engineer, those are different muscles than perhaps you're normally used to actually flexing and a different dialogue than you're used to having. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where it gets really tricky because if you get it wrong these days, you can be off a panel for 10 years. That's 10 years. That's, that could be a multi-million dollar a year panel and you, haven't, you don't have a seat at the table anymore for $30 million worth of work. Yeah, and I'm curious. What, is, what does that mean? Yeah, <laughs> it mate, it's massive. It's huge. And did you get to... Um, did you get to understand why some of those opportunities were lost? Was it a client-facing or client-understanding issue? Like if you've got a good outcome on the project, I mean, most people will be high-fiving and going, oh, we made some profit and we got a good outcome on the project. Yeah. What did you uncover? Well, I think what's really interesting and, um, and, and I suppose this was the great thing about Aqualab is it started to change the relationship dynamics between service provider and client to actually kind of almost pseudo team member and uh, and confidant, you know, so they're starting to share the, and what I realized actually with a lot of the conversations with kind of senior decision makers in those, in the client's domain is, you know, when, when we kind of got through the formalities, they said, you know, look, we're actually not quite sure how to achieve this. We know the outcome that we've got. We've got a lot of pressure from regulators. We've got a lot of pressure from um, our communities and our stakeholders and ultimately, we want to deliver a really good outcome. And, and to be frank, we, we don't have all the resources and the tools to be able to do that. And we're looking to you to stand in the trench beside us and actually help us do it, which is a real change of the dynamic and that relationship between service provider and client. Because if your normal modus operandi is fixed price, um, arguments over variations, 
and you know and like well that you, you know you should have said that or we don't want to take that on board and they go well look we for the you know we we didn't have two years to come up with this business plan we had like you know three months because we had a critical failure and we couldn't work out everything and so you know and so I think there's this kind of shift this cultural shift and, and that would probably be one of the biggest things that I sort of took away from some of the conversations with client side was um, we need to feel like you're standing beside us not just kind of watching us crash into a wall and going <laughs> yeah there's the wall we did tell you there's a wall coming up um, and you know and I think this is probably where there were so many great people at GHD that were you know were standing beside and wanting to stand more uh, more beside those clients and I think I think that's really some of the big challenges is how do you do it in a meaningful way um, how do you not get caught up in just what your business does how do you understand the nuances of what's going on on a on a sort of on a meta level with the fact that you know, maybe you're no longer losing a, a contract to a traditional competitor. You're losing that to a startup that's provided a, a monthly subscription where that used to be 20 people doing time and materials. And now they're paying $500 a month. Yeah. And, and that, that, you know, and how, how do you adjust as a traditional service provider goes, how do I compete with that? Like, <laughs> like how, how do I how do I change our entire business model overnight to be able to because we didn't even realize that that was where things were going. Yeah, and I, I mean we know that you can't necessarily change business models overnight, and the en- engineering and construction industry is very traditional and um, ingrained in the ways that they do in the ways that they do things. Um, which is, you know, I'm trying to work with my clients around. Let's think outside the box here, team. Let's get some innovative things going. Um, but it sounds like really that clients now are looking for that partnership model. They're looking for, uh, and I love your words, uh, for people to stand beside them and kind of help them through the process. Because you're right, like there's not that many, uh, like my background is civil engineering and, and mm. you know, the, tr- the traditional land subdivision used to be super simple and super easy. And, you know, the, from a client side point of view, they could engage a consultant to do all of that work and kind of be largely hands-off and know that an outcome would happen. But now things are so uh, much more difficult. Customers and consumers want more. They want um, eco-friendly developments. They want this. They want that. And a lot of client-side people, are um, they're outside of their comfort zone too because they don't really know how to deliver this sort of stuff. And so as, as our industry evolves at a rapid rate, client-side are trying to keep up and they're probably not, wanting to admit to their consultant team or their construction team that they don't really know what, what they're doing or that they need some help. And so it's up to um, consultants and contractors to kind of bridge that gap and be the one to yep. reach out and go, well, how can I help you? Um, I know that we've been engaged under a fixed fee arrangement or fixed lump sum, but here's some cool things that I think that we can do and talk about. Would you be open to that? And, and I think this is really part of it, right, is, is um, and look, you know, I had a, had a conversation for Carbon Planet with a, a potential client um, earlier in the week. And, and as they're trying to navigate through um, net zero and what does it mean? And, you know, and, and, and actually, you know, like, you know, fundamentally struggling with the fact that they're going, you know, look, I, I don't even know how we can get to this because like I, I'm trying to, I'm stressing out about how do people drive to work? You know, are they driving a diesel vehicle? If that, if they drive a diesel vehicle to work, does that mean that we can't have this as net zero? And, and you know, and just like 
actual like over, just feeling totally overwhelmed. Um, yeah. You know, wanting to move their business forward on that in that very large organization, but just fundamentally going like legislation and things are changing at such an unprecedented rate. We are, we just can't keep up. We don't even we can't even write the internal policies fast enough for the things that are changing on the outside. And if we get it wrong, we end up with our face on Facebook or in in, in Twitter, and and we're we're on the back foot going. And so it's creating some really interesting things. Is it's creating a real sense of fear um, and consequence. What happens when things go wrong? So you know when everyone's feeling you know particularly nervous about major infrastructure projects. And that rightly so, there's a lot of money, there's people's lives at stake, there's you know, lots that are there. You know, your natural instinct is to put armor around yourselves, right? So both sides are going to start kind of working out, you know, okay, so how do I cover myself from your actions and vice versa? And so the conversations actually start to slow down, they deteriorate, and it starts to become um, less collaborative, more um, almost combative. And, you know, and I, and I think about some of the, I mean, um, you know, obviously I'm following quite closely things like the Three Waters Initiative in New Zealand um, and, 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 you know, sort of still quite engaged with quite a few different water uh, leaders in the NZ. And you can see the complexity of, you know, councils trying to work out between each other, you know, who the, who the top dog is and, you know, why would I want to, you know, collaborate nationally when I feel like I'm losing control and, and so, gosh, you know, what an interesting um, space for for consultants to be in where you're going, you know, how are we going to navigate this minefield? Um, and so, look, I think first principles for me are kind of get back to basics, really understand um, and build some empathy and some trust with those clients so that they actually can feel like they can have that conversation to say, look, we really know the outcome we want to get to, but we sure as shit don't quite know how to get to that. So, you know, and we're looking for you to kind of um, support us and learn with us as we go along with us. And that will mean that you will have to adapt your pricing structure to be a, because you're ultimately you can't charge someone top dollar for something if they and yourself are working it out together. There's got to yeah. be a little bit of skin in the game on both sides. And I think, I think we're the engineering industry is probably um is probably going to find the biggest um disruptions for it is where they are you know their human time has been commoditized and if we look at like you know most large engineering firms you've got a, a, you know sort of 20 percent level of highly specialized you know very uniquely skilled people who are probably generating 80 percent of the the premium billing everyone else is kind of operating at low margins, almost commoditized. And they are the ones that are definitely ripe for, you know, like AI to replace those roles because the computer will actually probably generate the model better than the human will because it can run a thousand computations of a, of a, of a system instantly. Yeah. And so how do you, and I think this is the thing I'm really excited about what you're trying to do is that, you know, in this paradigm shift, how do you develop the right skills in an organization where a vast majority of the type of work that it does could be very likely replaced with robots? And so what's that magic skill that that business has? And the hardest thing for the robots is creativity, collaboration, um, human-centric skills. Those are the yep. things that are the hardest because the AI doesn't know what to do with that. That's why 
you know, I mean, geez, look at the um, misinformation stuff going on with, um, you know, like um, fake news. The algorithm is so good at giving us the fake news because it just wants us to look at it. It can't distinguish between the fact that it's fake. It's just like lots of people are reading it, so I might as well give more people it. And so that's where the interesting human element comes into, well, how do we help uh, to support the AI as it's developing out these systems because we're the creative ones, we're the artists, we're the, we're the, we're the problem solvers. This is the resource and the tool that does the work. Yeah, mate, it's the EQ piece, it's the self-awareness piece. And as long as we as human beings are constantly learning, growing, evolving, getting better, um, questioning ourselves too in terms of our thought processes, our mm. parts of our personality that might not support us so much, whether it's client relationships or business development, yeah, they're the people um, and, that, and they're the people that are going to help the company uh, move forward in a really strong way. Like I... I, I I agree with you, and I think there's an incredible opportunity for en- for the engineering industry at the moment. Uh, but we've got to be prepared to have hard conversations and have hard looks at ourselves in terms of where do I need to get better to improve mm-hmm. and move forward. I mean, and, and look at look at the scale of some of you know. I've got, obviously got a few SDGs up on the wall behind me, but you know, when you think about the mechanics of how do you bring um, energy, you know, just electrify a billion homes that don't have electricity at the moment around the world, or you, um, or you, uh, you want to bring, you know, clean water and sanitation to 2 billion uh, individuals around the world. You can see that as like, you know, there's never been a better time for engineering firms who uh, this is their bread and butter. You know, there's suddenly an opportunity to go, well, how would we scale our systems and our processes to be able to um, provide those outcomes to those communities? And so, I think it's probably one of the most incredible moments in all of our lifetimes um, to, to be here as we kind of embark on net zero. It's kind of like a focal point and we all have to kind of pull our socks up and work out how we're going to do it. Yep. The, the, the reality will be for the organisations that are adaptive, um, are humble, uh, have a level of empathy for their clients, um, can be creative around their fee structuring, they'll be the ones that come out on top. The ones that are rigid, um, you know, impersonal, um, you know, um, formularic, they will struggle to adapt and, you know, they'll go the way of the dodo and, you know, and they'll find themselves being blockbusters, you know. And, um, I mean, you know, that's, you know, looking back on it in hindsight, right, you look at blockbusters as a failure and go, well, that was pretty obvious. <laughs> you know, yeah. internet, um, you know, internet is, you know, everyone's got MBN at home, great. Uh, and, you know, we can all watch and stream stuff. It was obvious that Blockbusters was going to fall over, but for Blockbusters in that moment, and they didn't, they just didn't even want to hear it because they didn't have it. enough awareness of themselves in the industry, and they actually didn't really know what their clients wanted. And so I think that's a dangerous place to play. And um, uh, the other thing why I'm ranting on this is that it's um, – one of the big learnings for me, because I'd never worked for an engineering firm before, um, was um, I've always focused on customer segmentation as, uh, so I've always led sales, I've always led our sales teams and our marketing teams. And so I really want to understand what makes Josh tick. What's Josh's persona, his age range, his spending habits, da, 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 all those things, right? 
And then I develop products and services to deliver you being more happy. That's it. Just make you more happy. You're happy. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the interesting things I think for an engineering firm is moving from a project-centric mindset to an industry-centric mindset. And that I saw that often, uh, not just with GHD, with the other engineering firms that I was interacting with, they couldn't move themselves out of just this one project and think this is actually a trend happening across an entire industry segment. And if we don't adjust ourselves, we're going to lose not projects, we're going to lose entire lines of customers because we haven't adjusted ourselves to an industry trend rather than just a project outcome. Yeah. And, and the consequence of that, like we said before, you know, that's 10 years off a panel. And that's a long time to pick up the pieces. But, mate, like you said, there are opportunities out there at the moment if people are willing to implement a lot of what we've spoken about in the last 30 minutes. So, <laughs> um, mate, Carbon Planet, tell yes. me more. So, yeah, Carbon Planet. Um, so, I mean, this is the interesting thing. So when I stepped out of GHD, I actually really wanted to focus on SDG outcomes and, and work out, you know, how to, how to focus more on the outcomes and try and deliver some of these global trends. And so I had started having lots of different conversations with clients about lots of different things. And, and through that, there was this kind of underlying thing where everyone was like, look, you know, we're, we're trying to adjust ourselves towards net zero. We're trying to decarbonize our, um, our infrastructure. And so, you know, I was kind of initially um, making the decision to kind of go down that consultancy path again. And really, I was, I was at odds with it because I was going, well, I don't feel like this is as scalable again. I'm, I'm kind of falling back into this telling people what to do rather than helping them do it and stand in the trench. Um, and, and actually, I, I met Kath, who's our um, co-founder and CEO, and um, and through her passion for um, you know uh, resource management, she's worked as the ex-head of water for Brisbane City Council. She was with Greening Australia. Now she's uh, one of the directors for Stormwater Australia. Um, we ended up having a thirty-minute chat that turned into like a four-hour workshop around imagining what if we could value trees. What what would it mean if we didn't cut down trees? What if we could actually pay people who had trees on their land to keep them there? And we could start to track that in a digital way. And so, you know, that was about four months ago and things have evolved very, very rapidly. So essentially what Carbon Planet does is we create um, full traceability and trackability for carbon offsetting. Um, but we wanted to go further than that. So carbon offsetting is a starting point, but ESG outcomes uh, is where we're really targeting. And so um, we work in conjunction, almost like a partnership with landholders. And they might be traditional owners or Indigenous owners, First Nations people, um, uh, you know, public landholders, um, major, um, uh, you know, major farmers that might have um, uh, virgin land or um, standing forests on their property. And what we want to try and do is regenerate and replant that land. Um, and restore it to a native state so we don't we don't plant um, pine trees we don't do any of that stuff um, what we do is um, is actually large-scale um, uh, native restoration projects across water across catchments all sorts of stuff and so the goal is huge we want to have four million acres on our platform by 2025 um, four million acres sounds like an awful lot and it is an awful lot but to that put that lot. number Put that number in perspective, the fires that ripped through Australia in um, 2019 
devastated 25 and a half million acres. So we're looking at 4 million acres um, between New Zealand, Australia and into Europe. And, and this has kind of grown kind of quite quickly. So if you imagine we overlay a digital grid over top of a physical, uh, physical plot of land uh, and we create a digital twin of that forest or that land that we're planting. And then that grid, we create individual NFTs, which are non-fungible tokens uh, for all the tech heads on the on watching this. Uh, and obviously, everyone's pretty excited about NFTs at the moment, and everyone's trying to go, why on earth is a JPEG worth half a billion dollars? <laughs> Doesn't make sense. <laughs> and so, what what we're doing is we're and the way I kind of think about it, because I'm I'm you know I'm I'm not a I definitely am not a, a tech head when it comes to some of the stuff, but. The way I try to think about it is an NFT is like a digital serial number. It's a unique identifier for a physical item or a digital item. What we do is we overlay that on physical land and allows us to be able to track one-to-one. So if you're an organization that wants to kind of head towards net zero and you want to be able to go and activate projects in your own um, community in your own country and be able to really truly provide a, a unique identifier to your customers where you can say hey look we're on this journey click this link and see the community that we're helping and so that's the level of granularity that we're looking to provide and we've created an, an entirely new product set which we call an impact credit which combines both carbon offsetting as well as esg outcomes so what does that actually mean we're one of the first products that will actually directly stop deforestation by paying, uh, you know, landholders of standing trees to keep their trees there. Now, we do not provide that as a carbon offset. And, and the reason for that, and this is where everyone gets lost, is there's this interesting thing called additionality. And additionality when it comes to carbon offsetting basically means um, you can't use a standing tree that's already planted, that's already growing as a, as a carbon offset because we actually need more trees, not, not just kind of getting out of the jail card with the standing ones. The problem with the additionality kind of um, uh, system is that there hasn't been a, a model that allows for planting new trees as well as protecting the ones that stand. And so what we've seen on a global scale is the horrific consequence of the carbon price skyrocketing uh it's gone up it's tripled in price in the last 12 months wow so what what we've actually seen is standing native forests getting cut down because the only way that landholder can make money is to get paid to plant new trees and that is obviously a devastating result so you know we want to create obviously the planting of more trees but we don't want to do that at the cost of cutting down what we've already got there so four million acres is what we want on the system that'll give us the ability to sequester about 93 million tons and the thing that's quite unique with what we've done is we're connecting both iot sensors on the ground so we're actually putting soil carbon sensors biomass carbon sensors methane sensors so we're doing a full stack so sensors grids nfts and direct income for landholders, and so um, yeah, so it's it's been it's it's been quite intense, I would say. <laughs> Mate, there is so much in that download. I'm just sitting here going, "There's probably an entire podcast episode yeah. dedicated to that." Like, I'd love to unpack more of. Like, it just sounds like 
we talk about being innovative. We talk about being at the forefront of trying to solve clients' problems. Well, I mean, that's obviously a massive problem that because, I mean, I worked on, in my, in my time, worked on plenty of projects where they needed to find offset areas to plant to plant trees and yep. um and you're right like they were often in fairly fairly terrible areas or on corridors or fringes of highways or motorways that sort of stuff yep. and um mate it just sounds like that's so exciting in terms of people being able to track um down to a a, a single tree level what's actually mm. happening and how and how their carbon offsets are, are are going well you know what we're really excited about um so it, and this is where we kind of, you know, carbon offsetting. So this is the interesting thing. You could reach net zero, yet that may not have positive outcomes for the people on that land or other things. It's, you know, and that's why we kind of feel like it has to be more than just pure carbon offsetting. There has to be ESG outcomes. And so last week we engaged with representatives of the Mongolian government through um, uh, the fantastic team at the International River Foundation and that um, conversation was about helping to restore and protect the Tul River, which is one of the largest river systems in Mongolia, um, where many organizations um, and communities and pneumatic communities actually, um, you know, they, they absolutely depend on that river system. And so because we're able to create a um, scalable, investable product that allows for the restoration of this land, we can be providing carbon offsetting through the planting of new trees in, in Queensland, for example. But we can also at the same time provide um, funding towards restoration projects in a catchment area where that isn't carbon offsetting. That's actually the um, reduction of carbon emitting. So there's, it's, it's quite a unique um, proposition, which you know, so far from the dialogue that we've had with you know, large energy companies or mining companies or aviation providers, what they're saying to us is they want to go beyond carbon. They want to be able to actually provide social governance and environmental outcomes on the ground in those communities. So, um, yeah, look, it's, you know, the challenge that we face as humanity to try and get our, our rising temperature under control is that we currently offset 0.04% of the 50 billion tonnes of carbon we emit right now every year. Well, so there's a fair bit of headroom for growth. And if we <laughs> yeah. think about if we think about the eight billion dollars of economic income that's going to be generated here in southeast Queensland uh, through the Olympics in 2032, the big question we should be asking ourselves is how can we use that investment and that opportunity to actually create social impact across the whole uh, whole of Queensland and further afield and to other states as well? Um, because this is the first Olympics that they have pledged to be um, climate positive. And um, what the heck is climate positive? Um, in case you're, you know, your listeners are going, I am there's curious. too many terms. There's too <laughs> many terms. I can't keep up with it. Um, and so climate positive essentially means that you are able to, through the interventions and the projects that you're doing, you are actually able to um, process or store more carbon than what you produce. And so, right. um, so basically what that means from a carbon planet perspective is every single NFT we sell is a climate positive NFT. So there's energy consumption and the production and the minting of that NFT, but every single one plants 43 trees, which is a ton of carbon that can be um, 
sequestered every year. Um, and so we are developing our business as a B Corp from the start, which means that we're trying to be not only as environmentally efficient as we possibly can, but also socially. So, you know, we don't want to see, you know, um, the exploitation of, um, you know, uh, underage workers and people working, planting trees uh, for Australia in communities around the world where they're not being paid living wages and they're not being looked after. So, you know, we're collaborating with some incredible local technology companies that can plant up to 40,000 seeds a day of, um, of, you know, the seed for a tree. And so we're, we're really, um, yeah, we're really excited to kind of scale the impact. I could talk I, all day about this. I know, that's huge. And <laughs> running I, I, out I, of time. I 100% agree. We should do another one because I'm keen to dive into um, NFTs, how people can help and be part of this because I think you're really at the forefront of something pretty cool. Um, and, you know, net zero and carbon emissions and all that sort of stuff has been thrown around for ages as a bit of a, um, I, I'm not going to use the word token, but it's kind of like a, a thing that companies kind of have to hit and they don't really yep. realise what's involved, how do they get there, um, and they do the bare minimum. And it's refreshing to hear that you're talking to mining companies now that are looking at going, well, we want to we want to do more. We want to have positive social impacts and look, that kind of thing. So, Look, one of the biggest problems that we actually face, you know, for our, for our listeners here in Australia is that there actually often isn't projects big enough to be able to do their offsetting here in the local community. And so, you know, when it comes to um, kind of climate impact, we, we have to, I mean, this is kind of the interesting thing. It's kind of capitalism with a purpose. We're actually trying to, capitalism kind of got us in this mess. Um, but if we can be smarter and use a systems approach, which, you know, should work for every engineer who's listening to your show right now, you know, every, you know, circular economy or donut economics, whichever kind of um, term you want to use it, it's a systems approach. You know, we can't fix one thing without fixing another. If we want to stop burning coal, well, we've got to work out how we can provide um, heating and food cooking for people who rely on, on, on coal or on um, natural gas to do that right now. So, you know, let's, we just can't switch one thing off without creating 10 other problems. So um, that's where the ESG goals come in. So, but um, Perfect, mate. Woo. Love it. So, mate, um, final question for you. Mm -hmm. If you look back over your career and, you know, all of your learnings, all the things that you've succeeded at, maybe things that haven't gone so well. Um, yep. And you're sitting down having a beer or coffee with a 10-year younger version of yourself. What advice would you give to that 10-year that younger version of yourself? Well, that is a brilliant question. I love that question. And I, I actually try and do it all the time. I try and think, you know, what will my 10-year older version kind of shake their head at me? Um, uh, and hopefully they're still around. Um, look, I think a big part of it is... is understand the destination I, you know like when I exited my business uh, three years ago I, I hadn't really thought more than sort of 90 days ahead I didn't really kind of have a vision of where things would end up and therefore I was kind of like navigating to the next service station not knowing where the final destination was and GPS I just keep going from service station to service station driving around um, and so I think really it's about understanding you know understanding what drives you and what makes you happy and where where you want to get to and then kind of working back from there you know like hey i want to 
have this kind of lifestyle and I want to be able to um, do these types of things, what do I need to put in practice to be able to actually realize that? Because I think often we, we go about it the other way, which is like, I don't even think about how much I need to earn. I don't even think about what I want to get to at the end. I'm just kind of living in the, in the moment. And so, yeah, I would probably say just make sure you've got a good destination that'll change and evolve, but you've got to have a horizon that you're aiming for. Otherwise you, you just don't go anywhere. I think the other part of it is, um, you know, follow your intuition, follow your stomach um, and see things as learning opportunities. Um, I've, I've gone through some interesting um, moments in my life and, and challenges with mental health and, um, and uh, I've, you know, and, and actually um, just on the weekend, someone I knew um, uh, actually took his own life and uh, that's hit a lot of us really hard in New Zealand um, and has just exploded through LinkedIn and other areas. Um, and, you know, in these moments, I think it's it's also really good to reflect on our humanity for each other and, and you know, that we're all battling it out and, um, you know, we all put on a brave face. And when we see that someone's not actually doing too great, you know, you know, let's owe it to each other to kind of reach out because who knows, we might very likely be that person in that bad space at some point, um, desperately wanting someone to help pick us back up as well. So um, that is a very long answer, but um, hey, mate, that's be, good. I love it. Just be a good human. Yeah. And sorry for your loss, mate. That's, that's huge news. Yeah. Oh, look, look, and, you know, sorry to, you know, always that kind of thing is a tough one at the end of a, a podcast. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, what's the most beautiful thing that's come out of something so horrific and so tragic has it's catalyzed thousands of us to say that it is not okay, how, um, how things can transpire and how um, we as a community, media and others really need to have some humanity, some empathy and think about the consequence of how, you know, yeah, there's a way to report the news, but at the end of the day, we're all human beings and we all have feelings and we all have dreams and we all have fears. Um, and, you know, just because we might be in the public eye, doesn't mean that we don't feel the kick in the guts. Um, we really do. In fact, we might feel like we never stop getting kicked in the guts. So um, anyway, look after yourself. Be a good human. That's it. Don't so be mate, a dick. <laughs> well, that's a great way to end the podcast. <laughs> So, mate, yeah. where can people follow along with you in the journey? Um, yeah, so obviously I'm quite prolific on LinkedIn, so just um, search my name on there, Nick Shearing, and you'll find me. Uh, obviously, carbonplanet.io, so that's carbonplanet.io. You can check that out, and we're constantly evolving our website, so uh, there should be less Latin on it now. Um, <laughs> okay, good to know. Uh, what, and, um, yeah, and look, I, I guess um, always, always happy to have conversations, share learnings, um, yeah, never afraid to, to chat to people about whatever they're working through and, um, yeah, you know, pay it forward. That's the, that's the human thing. Um, it's worked really well for me in my career, pay it forward to others and doors just continue to keep opening for each other. Beautiful, mate. Thank you so much for your time today, dude. I've, I absolutely loved it. Pleasure. Hi there. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. Don't forget, if you'd like some help growing yourself, your team, or your business even faster, head over to my website, www.coachignite.com for more resources. 
or book in a call and we'll map out a plan together for you to move forward with confidence. Don't forget also to hit the subscribe button so you get notified about future episodes. Take care, my friends, and see you again soon.